verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Good morning. morning. As Pastor Luke said earlier, today's the first Sunday in Advent, and every year as a pastor, I'm torn by this time of year. On the one hand, I absolutely love it. It's, It's this fun time. It's full of games. It's full of parties, traditions, special foods. It's a time where people go out of their way to connect with each other. We have songs that we sing that we don't get to hear during the rest of the year, and it just feels after a while like there's this month long party. Like, there's always something just around the corner to look forward to. Uh, It happens in a very dark, cold time of the year. Just a a great time. I absolutely love it. And as a pastor, I'm aware that there's also a danger. And you're probably also aware of this danger. And that is that it's so easy to let the excitement of the season become the main thing. and, And become the main thing so that it effectively pushes Christ out into the background. You can learn very early in life that you don't need to be excited about Jesus to enjoy the season. The season is actually enough on its own. And when that happens, when as a Christian the season becomes more exciting to you than Jesus is, then what happens? Christianity becomes this sort of thin veneer, this this coating that you put onto the rest of the season. So Christian words and phrases come up around Jesus coming to earth as a baby, but they don't really grip you or at least not as much as all the other fun stuff in life. And Jesus, in that moment, becomes this sweet, sentimental add-on to the real stuff and to the stuff that you're really looking forward to. So you give a polite nod to him while you're looking forward to that other stuff. And so you come to church and you listen to stories and you hear about a manger and a star and angels and shepherds and and wise men, and and you've heard these all a hundred times before, and they just don't really move your heart. And then you do what? You go to a party. And the party does move your heart. And so you wind up with this situation where your heart grows cold toward Christ. Why? Because it's being warmed by something else. And you start to learn, this is what Christianity is. It's this religious kind of activity that you just sort of have to to do. And it's this thing that you have to acknowledge and, and this duty. But you go through it because you get to the good stuff on the other side. And there's so much more life outside of this. So the challenge then for us is how do we live in both of these worlds? Because you realize we have to. God has put us into this world. By his sovereign choice, he has located us in this culture at this time. And so we can't say, well, that's all bad, and we're just not going to do any of that. 
Instead, we have to learn how do we live out our faith in the middle of the rest of the world that God's put us into? How do we have hearts that are passionate about Christ, that are passionate about being his people in his kingdom, while we're also living in this American month-long party? I want to suggest to you two things that your elders and pastors will think will help. And the first one Luke's already mentioned, and it's that he... He didn't say this. He's put together this Advent devotional that we really want to urge you, please go through this. We want to do this as a church. The passages that are listed here are very short. The questions are very helpful to sort of process that on a daily basis. And as Luke said, you could benefit from doing this all by yourself. You will benefit more if you do this in community. So sit down with your roommate and say, for the month of December, can we find 15 minutes a day Maybe we don't go through all the questions. We find 15 minutes a day, and we start to do this together. Or maybe if you live on your own, you say, who is there that I can connect with once a week? We'll have coffee somewhere, and we'll share with each other, here's what I'm learning. Here's what the Spirit of God is teaching me. What's he teaching you? Or you decide, you know what, I'm going to make this arrangement where I'm going to email with somebody, just one or two sentences a day, nothing huge. But just again, this is what Christ is teaching me. What is Christ teaching you? What's this going to look like in the Smith family? Smith family is a little difficult because Sally, my wife, and I tend to live in different time zones. She's a night owl, and, and, and I'm a morning person, which means that she wants to stay up long after it's dark. I'd like to get up while it's still dark. And so we discovered early on that breakfast is just not a thing. That, that, that's a non-starter in our family. But dinner is one of those places where our time zones overlap. And so we're going to, we, we get together as much as we possibly can for dinner. And we've decided that after dinner, for the month of December, for 15 minutes, we'll go through the devotional together. And whoever is there, Danny's sometimes there, sometimes not because of work, but we'll read the passage together and talk through the questions. Now let me take just a moment to talk to parents specifically. Very clear in scripture that you are the primary ones in your family to communicate Christ to your kids. I know that, I believe that. I feel overwhelmed by that. I feel like at times I, I, I don't know how to do that. And I talk to other youth workers and they say, yeah, every time that we tell parents, it's your job to disciple your kids, they come back and say, well, we don't know how to do that. We hear you. We understand. We care. Take this and work with your kids with this. Will this solve all of your parenting issues? No. But it will help you communicate Christ to your kids better. And don't come back to me and say, well, you know, we're not going to be able to be consistent. We'll, we, we'll probably miss a couple days. The Smith family will miss more than a couple days. But we figure that what we're going to get from this will be worth the, 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 the struggle that it takes to make that time happen. That's one way to keep your focus on Christ this next month. Let me give a more of a self-serving advertisement, the sermon series. You can giggle at that. Uh, How do you structure an Advent sermon series? There's several different ways. One, you can go through the birth narratives, and you can say, here's the story, here's what actually happened. Or you can focus on the different people that Jesus actually impacted when he came to earth. Or you can go into the Old Testament, and you can say, these are the prophecies about Jesus that were spoken hundreds of years beforehand. All of those are valid. We're going to do something a little differently this year. We're going to focus on who is it who actually came to this earth. What was he like? And that will help us better understand why he came. And so we're going to go through this passage in Colossians 
couple verses each week for the month of December. And if you take a look on the inside cover of your Advent devotional, you'll see there we've listed the different Sundays and the different verses if you want to read ahead and sort of get an idea of where we're going. And the reason we're going through Colossians is because it focuses on different aspects of Jesus. It focuses on him as the creator, as the reconciler, as the redeemer, as the one who purifies his people. And our hope as your pastors and elders is that as we see Jesus a little bit better, we're going to become that much more enamored of him than we will of all of the other things around us and allow us to enter into those other things with hearts that are still passionate about Christ. So for today, we are in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verses 15 and 16, just looking today at Jesus as creator. Let me read them again. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So who is this Jesus who broke into this world several thousand years ago? He's the absolute center of everything. Three ways that you get see that spoken about here. Number one, he's the image of the invisible God. Not an image, he's the image. He's not part of an image, he's the whole package. And so he's able to talk to one of his friends at the Last Supper, Philip, and he says to him, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you really want to understand who God is, look at Jesus and you have everything that you need to know about who God is. He's the image of God. But he's also the firstborn, in our translation, of all creation, which is probably not the best way to translate that phrase. It makes Jesus sound like he's a little bit part of creation that was made, firstborn of all creation. And that was a popular heresy. It actually started back in the uh, third century. It was started by a bishop named Arius. And Arius had this little phrase that was very gripping. He said that there was a, to there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not. There was a time that God had created the world where there was the space-time space continuum, and it was after that that Jesus then was created. There was a time when Christ was not. If you're familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they still believe that today, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, and they'll cite this verse as proof. It's not really the best translation. You would be wiser to translate it as he's the firstborn over all creation. And if you do the work and you go and you read a whole lot of different translations, you'll realize most of them translate it that way. You think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a pretty big difference between of and over. If it's in the text, why are they translating it two different ways? It's because that word is actually not in the text. See, if we, if we were going to write this in English, we would decide we need a preposition, we need to have of, or we need to have over, and we would figure out which one it was, of or over, that we really meant, we would write that in the text. We'd either write two letters or four. There is no of or over in the Greek text. Because the Greek text depends on case endings to understand the function of a word in a sentence. And so there's a particular case ending that tells you it's a preposition. And so what you have in the Greek is all all creation is a, has that ending that tells you that it's a preposition. 
Most of the time when you translate that, you supply the of for us English readers so that we understand, okay, this is a prepositional phrase, and so you write of. But that's not the only preposition that actually works. There's actually a whole list of them. So most of the time you'd write of, but there are these other times, and this time you would have been better off writing over. So how do you tell that if you're not a Greek scholar? And if all you've got is the English Bible in front of you. See, that's why I, don't, I, I regularly don't do Greek words because it gives you less confidence in the scripture. You have everything in the scripture that you need in order to understand this should be over instead of of. How do you do that? You keep reading. And you look at verse 16 where you learn there that by him all things were created. You have to do some thinking here, but you start to understand, well, I have two different classifications. I have the class of him, and I have the class of all things created. If Jesus was actually part of the created things, he could not create all things. He can't create himself. Therefore, he's actually outside of that. If you wanted to say that Jesus is part of the creation and he's creating all the rest, you would say something like, by him all other things were created. The text doesn't say all other things. It says all things, very total. And it makes a clear distinction between every other thing that was created, all those things, and him himself. So you realize, okay, it can't be that he is part of creation. Are there other ways to understand this? Well, here's another hermeneutical principle. You recognize that scripture does not contradict itself. And so you go through the scripture looking for that word firstborn. Can I find another place where it connects to Christ and where it starts to help me understand him? And you find one of those in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 6, where we read there that when he, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And you realize that Jesus has to be brought into the world, into the created order where those angels already are. The angels are part of the created order. They're that invisible part that Colossians refers to. But Jesus has to be brought into that created order. He wasn't already part of it. He was separate from it, outside of it, and had to have God bring him into it. Think, okay, well, then, then, then firstborn does not mean he's the first part of creation that was made. So what, what does firstborn mean? Are there other places where you see this word firstborn in Scripture? Here's a helpful one. It's in Psalm 89, verse 27. The author is writing about King David, and he's speaking from God's perspective, God saying, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You just think about that for a moment. You realize, wait, Jesus, uh, David was the youngest in his family. So this cannot have anything to do with temporal order. God is not saying here, I will now make David the firstborn, the first one to come out of the womb. I'm going to reorganize the birth order and, and, and redo history. It's not saying that. David is also not the first king of Israel. He's the second. Saul's the first king. So firstborn has nothing to do with temporal order here. So well, what does it have to do with? It's about being the highest of the kings of the earth. It's about David being made supreme over all the other ones. It's about David having the highest position, about ranking first among all of the rest, about having no one else be more important than him. So when you say that Jesus is the firstborn, you're not talking about 
him as part of the physical creation. Instead, you're talking about his rights, his privileges to rule sovereignly over everything else, to be the supreme ruler of all that there is. And why is it that he's ruling sovereignly? It's because he made it all. The world was made, Colossians 1, verse 16, by him and through him and for him. So he's the source of all that is. It's by him. He's the means by which it exists. It's through him. And he's the goal toward which everything moves. It's for him. He's responsible for everything that exists. And he's responsible for where it's all going. It's all for him and for his glory. So everything now that you've ever learned about God in the Old Testament is being applied to Jesus. He's the creator of all that there is. He's the center of everything that there is. He's the reason for which it exists, the goal toward which it moves. It's all about him. But you're not being told this in a way that says, well, Jesus actually replaces God. He doesn't replace God. Christians don't say, well, the Old Testament got it wrong. In the Old Testament, we learn there that God is the creator. In the New Testament, it's actually Jesus, and they're separate. No, Jesus is God. Christians don't say that we've replaced God with Jesus. Instead, the text is very clear. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He reveals this God. He makes him known. This one who stands outside of the universe, from whose mind every single thing has ever sprung, is now made known to you through whom? Through Jesus. Which is amazing and wonderful. And here's where I struggle. I'm going to invite you into my struggle. There's part of me that says, but obvious. And, and, and almost a, a, a so what? Okay, maybe I don't always like that the world is all about God. And I don't like the fact that, that uh, everything that I do is for his glory. I'd like some of it to be for my glory. I don't like that, but it seems relatively clear, not surprising. So if it's that obvious, why does God tell us this? Why does God think that we need to know this? Okay, what is theology? It, it, it's not this mental puzzle. You know, get all the pieces right and you'll win. Theology is for what? It's for life. It's for living. It's for knowing how to go about living. And, and start to wonder, well, why does God think that you need to know this in order to live well? Because in this world, it's very easy to live without that regular daily awareness that Jesus is at the heart of everything that there is. Instead, you can go from the beginning of your day to the end of it, absolutely entirely consumed with what? With yourself. You can take yourself and put you at the center of the world. And so your first thought when you wake up in the morning is what you are going to have and what you're going to do and what the importance of this world is for you. You make your coffee. You, you, you go to uh, brush your teeth. You get washed. You read the news. You feed the kids. You drive to work. You log on to email. You do all the kind of stuff that you do all day long. You come home. You pick up the kids. You, you plow through different projects, run errands, eat dinner, stream all kind of videos at night, go to bed, and never once think about the supremacy of Christ over all creation. Instead, from beginning to end, your day was all about whom? It was all about you. Incredibly easy to do that in a day, right? No, it's incredibly easy to do that for a week, for a month, for weeks and months at a time. Way too easy on this planet to become preoccupied with me as though I'm the center of the universe, as though it exists all for me. 
and for my glory. Or, way too easy to become preoccupied with other people and to see them as the primary things that life is all about. That they are the source of my opportunity, that they are the source of the threats that happen to me. And so I'm focused constantly on what's going on around me, on who's running the country, on how well they're doing, on how badly they're doing, or closer in, who's making my life unpleasant today, or what opportunities are they giving me today? Who's stealing my promotion at work? Who's giving me a leg up? Who's been messing around with my kids? Who's actually helping my kids? And I start to focus on other people as this all-consuming opportunity or an all-consuming threat. We see ourselves this way. We see ourselves as too big. We see other people as too big. Why? Because we don't see Jesus big enough. See, if you are not focused on him at the center of life, you will replace him. Something else will take his place. And often it's me or the people around me. Now, to be fair, technically, there's also a third option. It's more popular outside the church than in. But I could imagine someone from the outside saying, you know what, I'm just not buying this. I mean, why does there have to be a creator at all? Call him God, call him Jesus, call him something else. Why isn't this all simply an origin myth, a pre-scientific attempt to explain what's all around us? I mean, science gives us an alternative explanation, right? That, that, that everything simply happened. That all that there is is simply the product of random chance events taking place under the guidance and governance of natural laws that work themselves out over countless eons of time. Why do we need a creator? We can understand the mechanisms of the modern world. Isn't that enough? Now, obviously, people have tried that approach. The problem is that if you go down that road, then you no longer have a way to explain why you know the things that you know. That's what the philosopher David Hume pointed out. Hume lived in the 1700s in England, and he recognized that there's a problem with the scientific approach to life. It's a philosophical problem. It's a problem that exists down to this day. Science depends on what? It depends on empiricism, on our ability to measure characteristics and data, to then manipulate, do stuff to the, the things that we were measuring, and then to measure it again and see what kind of change, changes have come out. And it's from these observations that scientists then make predictions about the future based on what? Based on what they've already observed in the past. And the reasoning goes then, because we've observed certain events that take place in the past and because those events are repeatable and they've produced consistent results, we're confident that they will continue to do so into the future. Hume comes along and he says, you can still learn about the world by doing that. That is a valid method of actually existing in this world. But it is philosophically inconsistent with your premise. Your premise is that you can only know what you've observed. But you cannot observe the future until it actually happens. And so you're making an assumption. You're assuming that it will be just like the past was. But on what basis are you making that assumption? It's an assumption that you've built into your system it does not come from within the system. It does not come from observable data. In other words, Hume is saying, yes, it works. I get that. I grant that. But from within your worldview, you can't explain why it works. 
you can't account for why it works. You have no rational explanation for why the future should be the same as the past has been. You have no explanation for why that's true, and in that case, you have no guarantee that it'll keep being true. You can't prove that, you can't observe that. But you've said all knowledge comes from observable data. You're inconsistent in your system. Let's try it this way. It's a little bit like a turkey on a farm in the last couple of days. And the turkey says to itself, you know, every day of my life this farmer comes out to feed me. He's done it every morning that I can remember. It goes all the way back to when I first hatched, when I came out of the egg. Every morning he comes to feed me. That's my past. Now look, here it is. It's Thursday morning. It's the fourth Thursday of the month of November. It's this day that everybody keeps talking about as Thanksgiving. And look, here comes the farmer. I know what he's going to do. And obviously the turkey doesn't. Turkey's surprised. Why? You're allowed to laugh. Why doesn't he know what's going on? He doesn't know the intention of the farmer. Not only does he not know the intention of the farmer, he doesn't understand himself. He doesn't know why he's here. He doesn't know where he's going. He's made an assumption about the nature of the world based on past experience. But he made a wrong assumption. He can't know the future based on what he's observed in the past. At which point, if you're actually thinking and wrestling with me over this, you would say, Bill, that's not really fair. I mean, farmers are not inanimate objects. We're talking about inanimate matter. We're talking about laws of nature. We're talking about forces that just are what they are, which means they'll always be the same. And Hume's question is, how do you know that? Hume will say, I give you that it works. I'm not going to debate that. The question I'm raising is, why does it work? And your philosophical system does not have an answer to why you're doing what you're doing. You can't justify the position that you've taken based on the worldview that you've selected. You can't account for why you do what you do. The best that you can say is, I do it because it works and I have confidence that it'll work. But if you listen carefully, that's actually a statement of faith. It's not a statement of science. And we all have those, that's the point. We all start our understanding of the world from a position of believing something that we cannot prove. The real question is, how do you decide which faith statement is true? Is the one from secular society right? Is the one from Christian society right? Are there others, philosophical systems, that might be right? How do you decide? Look at the one that gives you the better explanation of what's going on. Science cannot account for why it believes the future, so it's very legitimate to turn to Christianity and say, okay, you explain this. How do you explain the regularity of matter? And a Christian will say that there's a regularity of matter that you can depend on because there's a God who made the universe. And what that God has told us about himself is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and this world reflects him in that regularity and that dependability. More than that, though, he's given us a promise, Genesis 8:22, that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so we have confidence, based on what he said, that there's a regularity in this world that allows us to predict the future based on what we've seen in the past. And we do that because that's the way that God has built the world. And at some point in time, that's going to cease because what? There will be a judgment in the future that we can't predict 
based on what we've seen in the past. But we understand this about the world because there's an intentionality to the universe. It didn't just happen. That intentionality has been built into it by the creator. And again, if you're wrestling with me at this point, what's the objection to that? The objection is you're just playing the God card to hide what you don't know. We might not understand how matter works today, but at some point in time, we will. We have confidence. We just have to keep learning and growing. And Hume again would come and say, how do you know that? How do you know that if you put in enough time, at some point you'll understand the mechanisms? Have you observed that? You haven't observed that. That's simply a faith statement. In other words, both the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview have beliefs about the world. We all do. And we have those beliefs in order to make sense of the world around us. But not all of those beliefs are equal. If you assume there is no God at the center of the world, you no longer can make sense of the world that you live in. You can no longer have a consistent understanding of it. You can still learn, you can still study, you can still think. But not because of the way the world is according to you. It's according to the way that the world is that God made it. In other words, you have to take something from the Christian worldview in order to make sense of your life. The only way that you can talk meaningfully is to borrow from the Christian worldview in order to do so. And so you borrow from us the regularity and dependability of matter. It's regular, it's dependable, but there's nothing in the secular worldview that helps you understand that. The same is true, just real brief aside, if you want to talk about less material things, if you want to talk about beauty, if you want to talk about truth, if you want to talk about justice, you want to talk about love, none of those has any meaning in a randomly constructed universe. In a randomly constructed universe, there is no meaning. So how can those things have value if they're simply the product of random events? And yet every day you live believing that those things have meaning. You may not know how to define them, but you know that there is something called beauty. And you live as though there is something called truth and that some things are more true and some things are less true. You live as though there is something called justice and it really means a lot to you. And you absolutely know that love has meaning. Take God out of the center of the world. You can't make sense of why there's meaning to any of those things. So here's the challenge at the end of the conversation. If you can't make sense of the world because of your starting point, because of your opening premise, because of your faith commitment, if you can't make sense of the world based in the way that you have tried to construct the world, wouldn't you want to consider another one? One that makes better sense of the world? You can't replace God at the center of the world with nothing. The world doesn't work. Leaves you with a world you can't explain or live consistently. But then again, maybe somebody would come back and say, well, okay, what if I replace him with myself? Okay, I've always heard that selfishness is bad. I get that. But, you know, from the point of view of the person who's being selfish, doesn't that, doesn't that world work relatively well? I mean, you get everything that you want, and you, you can sort of live pretty decently, right? How about I become the center of the world, and I just continue to live that way into the future? Is there really a problem with that? apart from other people not liking it. The problem is that you're not big enough to be the center of the world. And if you take God out of the center, there's no way now to know how big you should be. There's no way to know when you are taking on too much in your world 
and when you are taking on not nearly enough. When you take God out of the center, you don't have anyone any longer who can tell you, this is what you were made for. This is how you should live. This will actually give you a great life if you will live this way. You don't have anybody who has the right to tell you that. You don't have anybody who has the love to tell you that. And so without God at the center of the world, if you replace him, what's going to happen? You're going to push yourself toward two extremes, both unhealthy. Let's think about work. At work, you have a project. And you know something about projects. You know that you can always do more work on a project, right? That there's never an end. And you know that you can always do less work. So if you're at the center of the world and everything has to be decided by you, how do you know when you've put in too much and how do you know when you've put in too little? We all know perfectionists. We could probably identify them, right? People who just can never let something go and they're always having to do a little bit more. They're afraid to turn it in. We all know people who underperform. People who need to be told, step up, rise to the occasion, do a little bit more. How do you tell which one you are or which direction you're going if you're now the deciding one at the center of your world and you don't have someone else to tell you that? You say, well, okay, um, then what I really need is the, the wisdom of the community. Uh, I don't need God. I just need everybody else to give me input. Okay, that's fine. How much input should you take? If you are too sensitive and you're too open to what other people have to say, guess what? You'll be paralyzed because all that input will start to compete with, it, with itself. But if you're not open enough, you'll be, mis you'll, you'll be inflexible, hardened, stubborn, arrogant. You'll never grow. You'll never mature. How much is taking in too much? How much is too little? Well, let's think about how you affect the, these people who you're actually now working with. Because if you're at the center of the world, all of the results are, are on your shoulders, right? It, it's up to you to craft the world the way that you want to have it. Well, what happens when people don't actually want to work with you and they have their own ideas? What do you do? You start to pressure them, right? Some of us pressure in nice kind of ways. We bribe people. Some of us pressure in ways that are not so nice. We bully people. And once you bribe and bully and people don't get on board, what do you do? You ramp it up a little bit more. You bribe a little bit more. You bully a little bit more. If you're a parent, you completely understand this. Kids are not working. They're not doing the things that you want to do. I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically here. And so what do you do? You, you get a little louder or you get a little bit more incentivized. If none of that is working, either at home or at work, what do you do? You just quit. <laughs> and you give up and you say, I, I, I can't affect and influence anybody. In other words, if you replace God at the center of the world, you will either try to expand yourself too large or you will shrink yourself too small. You'll either try to take his place and run the world or you'll get tired and do as little as possible. Put yourself at the center of the world and you will be frustrated. And you will frustrate others. You'll either be afraid of life, you'll pull back from life, or you'll terrify other people, and they'll pull back from you. You can't replace God at the center of life with nothing. You can't replace him with yourself. You can't replace him with other people. Any of those ways leads to a life that doesn't work. The only life that will work is if God has his right place at the center of your life. Think, well, why does that make any difference? Why does that actually work? It's because he changes the relationship between what I do, and the results that come out of that. And so God teaches me I'm responsible for being a certain kind of person. 
I'm responsible for thinking certain things and saying certain things and doing certain things. I'm responsible for those certain things because I'm accountable to the one who made me. He knows what I was made for, and he knows that I am to give him glory. And therefore, there are certain things that I should be thinking, doing, and ways that I should be obeying. But having God be at the center also teaches me I'm not responsible for what happens after I do what I was told to do. My responsibility is to obey. My responsibility is not to make sure that other people are on board with that. And so when I live with God at the center, I'm aware that I'm to live in a way that values what he values. I'm aware that I live before the face of God, that I don't have the freedom to just do whatever I feel like doing. But also makes me aware that since he created everything for him, he actually takes responsibility for that everything. If it is all not simply from him, but also for him, that means that he will work it out so that it does bring him glory. I don't have to weigh into that. I'm not at the center of the world. It wasn't made for my glory. It was made for his. And so I'm responsible for my part, to not shrink my part too small. I'm not responsible for what happens after my part. So when at work, what do I do? I'm responsible for how hard I work. I am not responsible for what others think of my work. I'm not responsible for how they evaluate my work. Or you think about the words that I say. I'm responsible for what I say. I'm responsible for the contributions that I try to make, for the things that I try to share, for the direction I try to give. I am not responsible to make other people value what I say. I'm not responsible to make other people accept what I say, to change because of it. I'm responsible to love every person I come in contact with. I am not responsible to make someone else feel loved. I'm not responsible to make them accept the love that I'm offering to them. I'm responsible to tell my children about the Lord. I'm not responsible to make them like the Lord. I'm responsible to parent them, to invest myself in them, to offer to spend time with them, to give them best wisdom that I have, to correct them, rebuke them, discipline them. I'm not responsible to make them embrace what I'm trying to offer them. I'm not the center. They were not made for me. It was all made for Christ. That frees me up then to live because as the creator, Jesus takes responsibility for how all of this turns out. I'm free to do the best that I can do and then to leave the results of the, of the world up to him. Now that's true on these small scales of life when we're talking about my family, my friends, my coworkers. It's true as I turn my gaze out to that larger world as well. You realize here that we're told that Jesus created everything in heaven and on earth. Everything that's visible, everything that's invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He, he created everything to bring him glory. That means he takes responsibility that it will bring him glory. And so I can calm down when I look outside at that larger world. So if the politician that I vote for does not win, well, that's disappointing. It may even be upsetting. It's not devastating. It won't destroy creation. It's not going to destroy God's plans for creation. It's not going to destroy the glory that comes to Christ. It can't because he's at the center of the world. If my investments tank, well, then my life is not exactly what I hoped it would be. But it isn't ruined because my life is not dependent on what the stock market is doing or on how good my investment strategy is. 
Or if there's a nation that rises up to threaten our way of life, that's frightening. It should be frightening. But ultimately, it doesn't threaten anything of real ultimate value. It can't. It can't threaten the future of any of God's people. It can't threaten the glory of God. Why? Because these are all created authorities and created rulers. None of them hold ultimate power, not not even the ones I disagree with. They are under authorities, under Christ. And Jesus will see to it that he is glorified in all of those things, even when I don't understand how that's possible. So I don't need to be afraid when I look out at this larger world because Jesus is the firstborn. None of the rest are. What am I saying? If you want to have a good life, Jesus needs to be at the center. And we're not talking just for the next month. If you want your life to be good, he needs to be as large as he really is. And when he is as large as he really is, you become your right size. And everybody else becomes their right size. And in half an hour, I think it sounds relatively easy. But you know how hard that is. And you know how easy it is to go through an entire day without thinking once about the supremacy of Christ over creation. And how you can spend weeks and months and never ever think about this. You think, why is this so hard? It goes back to that image thing. Genesis 1 tells us that God made us in his image. We are to reflect him. That's our purpose. We are to live on this earth like he would. But in Adam, humanity rejects that purpose. We decide we had a better idea, a better way to live, and so we refuse to live like God would. We didn't want him at the center of the world. We thought we actually could replace him, that we could live here just as well without him, just as well without connecting to him, just as well without focusing on him, wrapping ourselves around him, and doing everything possible to bring him glory. And it doesn't work. The only thing that we've managed to create is a world that doesn't work. You know that personally. All you have to do is look outside yourself sometime and you realize the world does not know how to make itself work. The problem is with us, we're the ones that don't work right. Augustine said it this way, God made us for himself. We're made by him, we're made for him. That's our purpose, that's why we're here. Take that away, you can't make life work. And it's not in throwing off the shackles of God, if you want to put it in that kind of a horrific way, it's not that you suddenly now become bigger. You actually become less. You're less who you were supposed to be. You're less an image of God. You're less human. And you create a world then that has no idea of what God actually looks like. That's the tragedy of what takes place in the Garden of Eden. That in rejecting that highborn state to be the image of God, Adam plunged this world into a world that has no image in it. Now here's the glory of God, which is what we celebrate in Advent. God was not okay with that. God was not okay with a world that did not reflect him and did not show him. And so God replaced his own image. Jesus came. He's the perfect image of God, and he loved having God be the center of everything that he was and everything that he did. He was thrilled to come from God and orient everything that he was around God. In fact, he didn't want anything but for God to be the center. And he wanted that despite what God promised See, there's a contrast between these two images of God. To the first image, Adam, God promised, obey me, 
and you will live. Obey me. Eat anything you like. Just not from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Enjoy all that there is in this very good world that I have made for you. You can have it all except this one thing. Obey me. Put me at the center of your life and you will live. And Adam said, no, I will not. I don't want you at the center of my life. I will be. And to the second Adam, the second image of God, Jesus, God said, obey me and you will die. Obey me and you will suffer. Obey me and you will experience my wrath and my anger poured out on you. You'll be rejected by humanity. I will forsake you. Obey me. Put me at the center of your life and you will die. And Jesus said, I will. I will because you are the center around which everything else turns. Around which everything else should turn, me included. I will obey you because your glory is infinitely worth more than anything I could ever find to replace it. I will obey you. And it's his obedience that saves you. He suffered what you should have in order so that you could take back the image of God that you were always supposed to have so that it could be restored to you. So that you could know what it is to have the Father's embrace, the Father's acceptance, the Father's love. So that you could live knowing there is no better center than God. All of the rest of the things that God has made, they're wonderful. They're not nearly as good as he is. So that you can have a heart that actually wants him to be at the center. How do you have a heart that's warmed by that over the next month? Meditate. Focus. Turn this over and over in your mind until it goes down deep. Talk with him. Pray it through with him. Talk with others. Focus on him and you'll discover there isn't anything better that you could want. Not for this month, not for any month. Let me pray for us.